Our scripture reading this morning goes along with our series that we're preaching through in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 11 through verse 23. Colossians 1, verse 11 through 23. If you don't have your own Bible, our ushers have Bibles available. If you raise your hand, they'll bring a Bible to you that you can use throughout our service this morning. Reading Colossians 1, 11 through 23. Let's all stand respect, in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Verse 11 starts at the middle of uh, Paul's prayer for the saints, where he says, May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. As Paul's there at the reading of God's word. Thank God for his word in this portion that we read is a portion of our text this morning. Our text this morning will flow from verses... 18, excuse me, verses 20 through 23 is our text this morning. Colossians 1, 20 through 23. If you would remain standing with me for a moment of prayer, after our prayer time, our choir will have one selection and then the preaching of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for waking us up this morning given us alert 
minds and able bodies that we can come and serve you here. So I thank you, Lord, for allowing each one that's here to be here today. We pray for those who could not be here for health reasons. We pray that you would watch over and bless. We think of my dad and that you would strengthen him. I thank you, Lord, for so many saints who have been praying for him. And saints in this church and overall saints in your church, we just thank you for, for that. Um, we just pray that you would continue to watch over and bless. We ask that you would watch over others, Lord. We think of, of Heidi as she gets closer and closer to her due date. You will watch over and be with and bless her and little baby Jordan, who's soon to be born, that you would allow him to be born safely, healthy, and watch over Heidi as she gives birth and, and up to this time, Lord. We just pray for your blessing in that. We just pray for uh, the events of this week coming up for boys camp and praying for a strong participation from our men in that and that you would uh, use that as we go out that you would bring boys here and that you would help Lord as they hear the gospel as they interact with uh, other men that they would see um, a model of Christ a model of, of uh, manhood a model of believers that would spur them, encourage them, and challenge and help them and teach them um, what it is to, to trust in Christ and that they need to trust in him. And so, Lord, we pray for, for that. We, we, um, we just thank you for the activities of this week with our Youth for Christ activities on yesterday and in our, our, our men's uh, fellowship um, and uh, for, thank you for Willie and Mickey for opening their house for that. And we just uh, thank you for the men who came. And we just pray that you just continue your work um, in this ministry. We pray for Saturday, Lord, for our outreach uh, ministry to the Milwaukee Rescue Mission as we have opportunity to, to, to preach there. And we pray that you would bless that as well. Take your word now, Lord. Use it for your glory. Help us to understand, to be challenged by it, to be moved to obedience and faithfulness to you, to learn, to, to, to be moved to worship you and to appreciate what you, who you are and what you have done for us. And now we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Message number four in our series through Colossians. I mentioned last week it is good to go through the Word of God in a sequence and in a series. And we got a glimpse last week of, of, of how blessed it is to do that as we see, we get a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by going through in series, we get a more complete picture. We mentioned that the Gospels... Um, show the life of Christ and I like to say it from different camera angles why four different gospels Matthew Mark Luke, Luke and John is so that we can get a fuller picture of the Lord Jesus Christ Paul in his letter to to the believers in, in, in Colossians in, in Col Colossae I should say <coughs> gives us a, a picture of Christ. It is said that Colossians is a Christ-rich book. 
and it magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that right here starting in the first chapter. Even as he begins to pray for believers, he is focused and he is, he is just filled with who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so today will be our second part of, of that message. And we want to look at... Um, not only who this Jesus is, that we covered last week, but what he has accomplished for us and what that means to us as believers. So at verse 19, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He wraps up who Jesus is by saying, In this person, in Jesus Christ, all of God's fullness lives. He is not diminished in any way from being fully God. I know that, that that's hard for us to understand, but it's, it is important for us to, to understand. We've been talking in our Sunday school and the catechisms that Jesus Christ is 100% man, and why that's necessary, because he represents us in his death on the cross, it's on our behalf. So as a man, as a human being, he represents the human race or those who will trust in him. And he is 100% God. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, which enables him then to qualify as a sacrifice on the cross. None of us would qualify. The Bible is clear from the Old Testament to the New. There's no individual who walked the face of this earth other than Christ who is qualified to pay for their own sin or my sin or your sin. Jesus alone qualifies. He is 100% fully God, perfect in his humanity, completely God, and so he qualifies to pay for our sin. It says here, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. There's no conflict in him. You know, you know, while he walked to earth, people were disturbed by the fact that he says, first he said, God is my father. They, they didn't like that. Then he, he went out and said, I am he, I am. They definitely didn't like that. But you know, God the father didn't blink an eye. It didn't bother him one bit that there was someone on earth saying that he is God. Now think about that statement. The Bible says God is a jealous God. He will not share his glory with any other. And yet he is pleased to, to allow his son to say, I am fully God. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. And that's exactly what scripture is saying about him. So what does this mean for us? Starting in verse 20, he says, you know, I mentioned that, that this is rich in who Christ is. So as Paul is, is teaching, as, even as he's praying and, and giving his message to them, it's filled with who Christ is. And then there is this, this little bit thrown in so we would understand what that means for us. And, and, and I want you to understand that ratio because I hear too much preaching, preaching that's man-centered. It's about me. It's about, uh, 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 um, even when we give our testimony, how blessed I am. It's, it's, it's good to know that you're blessed, but you need to also know 
that the focus of the words of your mouth needs to be on God himself, not on you. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine. Why? So people see you better? No. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Not to bring attention to yourself, but to glorify the Father. So I notice in Paul's writing, he had that kind of a, a, a focus and that, that kind of a ratio to what he said and, and the power of his words. And verse 20 says, through him, through this Jesus in whom dwells the fullness of God, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We see that it is through Jesus that Jesus reconciles sinners to himself. In other words, he uses his supreme position, his right, his privilege, his power, his authority. He uses it on behalf of those who will come to trust in him. That's good to know that, that all that he is benefits those who trust in him. And, and how does he benefit? By doing this, this work of reconciliation. I like this term of reconciliation. He, it says, through him to reconcile to himself. I think of reconciliation or the word reconcile as restoring. Restoring. We see people who had a relationship with a husband or wife or, or co-workers or, or, or any, any human relationship, when it goes awry, there needs to be some, some reconciliation. There needs to be brought back in right relationship, a restoring of that relationship. Jesus says he is the key to restoring the relationship between man and God. He is the key to doing that, and that's what he is about. I like the idea of restoring. I went to school to be an engineer before I went to school to, to pastor. And I like the idea of taking something and bringing it back to usefulness. I bought a house. And that house, we spent a lot of time restoring. Reconciling it back to its original intent and state. Right? I enjoy doing that because you get to see the before picture and after a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of money, blood, sweat, and tears, you get to see the final picture. And, and that work of restoring is, is, is a very, it's very satisfying uh, experience. This idea that Christ reconciles us lets us know something. That at one time... We were where we needed to be, and then something happened to disturb that, and we need to be brought back in that right place. Now, I say we, I mean we as, as a plural we, the human race. God created his creation, and he says it's all good. It's all good. But something happened in that, and it, it disturbed and it caused decay, so to speak, in the relationship between man and God. In fact, decay, 
between a relationship between God the creator and his creation. We walk around in a messed up world, a junky world that needs to be renovated and needs to be restored. And there's only one who knows how to do that. I find that when I do restoration work in my house, it, it helps me to gain some knowledge from the guys who built it. I need to know something of what they did. I need to know how they worked, what their intent was. And so if you're going to do a good restoration job, there's nobody better suited than the one who did the original job who knows exactly what they did and what they intended that to be. Now, I had to do some work in my house. I had to do some research. I had to figure out, what was this wall here for? Is it original? Was it part of the original house, or can I tear it down? Does it bear the load above? Can I take it down with nothing else falling down? Or is it a decorative feature that I no longer need that I can replace now? So the intent of the original creator needs to be in the mind of the restorer, and when they are one and the same, you're going to have a perfect restoration. How is it then that we were in right fellowship with God? Genesis tells us that, that God created man. He, he, he had fellowship with God, and then sin came about and destroyed that relationship. That is what Christ and only Christ can restore. And that's what he came to do, to reconcile. Notice what he does. He restores everything back in order. Now, there are some minor restorations that you can do, and there's some major restorations. Most of us do, uh, or should do, many of the minor restorations. When you left the house this morning, I would imagine when you fixed your meal, when you got dressed, when you washed up and cleaned up and did those things, you may not have put everything back in its right place. It may be a few things slightly out of order. Your closet might not be lined up the way that it's supposed to be. There may be some things on the bed that need to be in a the closet. There may be some things in the closet that need to be in the bed. There may be some things out of order. So you have to go back and restore order. That's what Jesus does, but he does it in a major way. He does that, first of all, by taking his rightful position. He does this in all of his creation, and he does this in our lives as well. Jesus is going to restore the created order that he created. He's going to put things back in their right order. Which means in their right order, he is going to rule and he is going to reign. That's the right order. If you like me, you, 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 you travel around in the streets of this city and you recognize it's a lot of stuff out of order. Even when we try to put, back it, put it back in order, we have chaos. I was driving down the street. I was like, why we got so many streets under construction? Well, I know why, because they're trying to put it back in order. But it creates so much chaos, right? 
You got a road that's supposed to be four lanes, two on each side. Now it's only two, and in some cases, it's a one-way street. You can't even get down to, to go the way you want. They, it's chaos because they are trying to restore, and it makes a mess sometimes. Sometimes that needs to happen in our lives. <laughs> we got to do a little tearing up <laughs> before we can fix it up. God has to do a little work in our lives. We got to be willing to go through the trouble that's going to happen, a little hectic uh, chaos that's going to happen as he restores our life. I notice what he does, though. He takes his rightful position. He's ruler. He's reigner. He's the Lord and creator, and he's God. Is he that in your life? If he is not, then he's not doing that rest reconciliation and that restoration that needs to be done. He has to be Lord. He has to be in charge. You're on his schedule now. He says, it's summertime. I'm going to tear down this road and refix it. I'm going to do as I please. He puts things and people in the right place. First person he puts in the right place is himself as head, as ruler, as reigning. It says in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. It says all things. We notice from previous verses, in verse uh, 16, it says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And we, we know that those, those terms that are listed there, that they, they speak of a spiritual world, an angelic spiritual world, and specifically a demonic angelic spiritual world. And Christ says he's in control of all of that. He rules and reigns over all that. And it says now when he reconciles, He's going to reconcile everything to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. So he's going to put things in their right place, and he's going to put beings and people in their right place. Think about that. He's going to put beings. Why do I say beings? Not just human beings, but spiritual beings as well. He's going to put them in their right place. God had a meeting with Job, actually when he had a meeting with Satan about Job, he asked the devil, what's going on? What you been doing? The devil said, oh, I've been roaming around, doing what I do, seeing what I could get into. And God said to him, you checked out Job? He says, oh, yeah, I checked him out. But you shielded him. You won't let me get at him. God says to Satan, go ahead. Go for it. See what you can do. See what you can do in Job's life. The point there is that what was Satan doing? It says he was roaming. He, he was walking to and fro, the old King James says. In other words, he had a realm. He had a place he had the freedom to come and go as he pleased. 
when Jesus restores things and restores beings, Satan is where he's going to start. He's going to put him in his place. What place is that? Ah, you know what place that is. The place called hell. It's the place you say, well, why is that? When, when, I, was a, when I was a boy, that was a word we, we weren't allowed to say unless we were reading the Bible. <laughs> and I understand that now. Because to use it in any other sense than its real sense is, is to... Is to um, to make light of what it really is. People say it's a hot day today, it's 94 degrees, it's hot as hell. They, they don't know anything of what they're talking about. It's to diminish the true sense and the meaning of that. Hell is an eternal place of judgment where there is going to be eternal torment for Satan and all of his followers spiritual, and human. When Christ restores things, he's going to put him in his place. Remember what it says in verse 16, he has dominion over all these things, and he specifically lists Satan's kingdom. Remember what we said when we started out, that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. That Christ has done something to set, he, 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 he's, he's set notice on Satan that your kingdom is coming to an end. It's not ended yet, but it's coming to an end. And the work has begun, has already started for that kingdom to come to an end. And what is that? It's this work that's spoken about in this verse when Christ reconciles. It says, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the interesting phrase. Think about this. Christ makes peace by blood. He makes peace by blood. He uses violence. That's what blood symbolizes, violence and death. That's why we don't like to see the sight of blood. It scares us, not because we're scared of the color red. We actually like the color red. This church is decorated in a deep maroon color. It's appealing to us. What scares us about that is if we see that in a liquid form and know that it's blood, because when blood is spilled, we know that it leads to death. Jesus uses death, pain, suffering and violence to bring about peace. Now, wow, how does he do that? That, that, that very term ought to shake us up and, and get us thinking, what is this thing that Jesus is doing? How is it he's going to reconcile and bring peace by blood? And, 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 and certainly the Bible and the gospel gives us the answer to that. The violence was acted upon him not by him, he used a violent act against himself that God the Father had determined he would use as a means to bring about our redemption. Look at a verse earlier. 
in verse 13 of this same chapter. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That word redemption means that we've been purchased by a price. A price has been paid for us to be freed from the slavery that we were in. Jesus did that by his blood. He brought peace for us with his blood on the cross. So that's an interesting term. We see that he does that to reconcile us. He brings peace by blood. But there's another part of that we need to understand. Is that he's going to totally reconcile us. In other words, our salvation has has, has at least three different tenses. I'm going to talk about uh, four of that today, actually. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Jesus saved us by his blood. He is, he is keeping, he's sustaining us by his power. He's going to completely deliver us from the domain of the darkness that we still live in. And so he's done that by his blood, but he's going to come back and deliver us. And guess what? He's going to use violence then too. But it won't be a violent act enacted on him. It will be one that he does. That's the part that, that people don't like, to, to, don't like to, to think about because they don't know Christ. This Christ who came to, ru who came to rule and to reign is going to completely take over his creation and he's going to do that by might and by force because he is the might. He is the Almighty. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. People walk around today and they act like this is how it's going to be and nothing's going to change it. They are ignorant to the plan of God that he's bringing his son back to his creation to take back over his creation and he will do it with might and with power. The world today sees Jesus only stretched out on a cross. And that's a good picture of him because on that cross, he won our peace. But they failed to see this same Jesus was resurrected so he cannot die again. He will not die again. He's coming back as king and Lord and he's coming with power. That's what we warn the world about now. That Christ is coming, and he's coming with power, and he's going to restore, put back things in their place. The devil been messing up a lot down here. Jesus is going to clean it all up. He's going to put it back in place. He's putting himself back on top on rule. He's putting us in our place along with him. He's putting Satan in his place and with that this is what people don't like about the gospel he's putting those who have followed Satan in their place with Satan there is a sure judgment that is coming let's continue on He says in verse 21, and you. 
And he brings the focus then upon us. He talks about who are we. We talked about the Christ-centric focus of Colossians, focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. But he does spend some time talking about who we are. And he, he speaks in the three tenths that I mentioned. Who we were. Verse 21, you who once were. He speaks of who we were. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Three things he speaks of. We were alienated. We were separated and apart from God. That describes us before we came to put our trust in Christ Jesus. We were alienated. In other words, we were not apart or connected with God, and we had no means to do that. He says we were hostile-minded. You see, we weren't just neutral. The Bible doesn't say that all people are just nice and good people, and God says, I want these nice and good people to live with me. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is that you were hostile towards God, and guess what? God was hostile towards you. There is, an, there is an enmity, a conflict between two sets, one who is holy and one who is not. God will not allow that which is not holy to come into his presence. Remember what Paul said early in this passage when he says, verse 12, he has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's a mighty word. He's qualified me. If God has qualified me, nobody can disqualify me. That's good news, but I had to be qualified. There was something about me that disqualified me, and here it is. I was hostile in my mind. I was not neutral in my mind. People think that most people are just neutral about God. You will get that if you talk to them in casual ways about God. If you say to them, do you love God? Well, yeah, I recognize God and, you know, we okay. But when you begin to speak of the God of Scripture, the God that is described by his own word, not by somebody else's, someone else's imagination of who he is. That's why so many people have all these questions about God. They don't like the God that they see in Scripture. You know what? When it says we are hostile mind, it means we all have a problem. We have an authority problem. In our basic level, we have an authority problem. Now, it comes up in different ways. For a lot of men, they think it's the, it's, it's the man. They got a problem with the man. That's why I don't work for nobody. And I ain't having them tell me what to do. You don't have a problem with man only. You have a problem with authority in God. But some of us is our fathers. They say, you know, he ain't never been around for me. He ain't never done this for me. Every time when I did see him, he was just working and doing his own thing. And we, we have a problem with our fathers. And some justifiably, I understand that because none of us have perfect fathers. But ultimately, it's not a problem there. It goes much further than that. We have an authority problem. We have a problem with God himself. We have a problem with God who says, who, who defines our lives. 
know that we in America think of ourselves as self-determined. We can be anybody we want to be and do anything that we desire to do. But the reality of that is not. I ain't going to be rich. I figured that out. Now, praise God, God did make me good looking so I can get over that. <laughs> you ain't going to be good looking, but you might be rich. <laughs> but we don't like the fact that God made me with short hair, 5'9", and 100 <clears throat> pounds. That changes. <laughs> we like, how come God didn't make me like this? Who is he to tell me? How come I was born in this family? How come I ain't got this or that? How come my health is the way it is? How come I inherited bad kidneys from so-and-so? How come I got cancer? How come, why did this mess happen to me? Basically, we're saying, God, you did me wrong. And, and beneath that, we're saying, God, who gave you the right? And God said, wait a minute. I gave myself that right. What? <laughs> yeah, he did. Because he is God. He is sovereign. He was not created. He didn't wait to come into existence he always did. He owns everything. It's all his. He does with it as he pleases, and he's God. And so we reject that deep within our souls until we realize, one, we can't fight it, <laughs> and two, is when he's reconciled us to himself, we belong to him, and everything that I am is in him and controlled by him, and so I'm all good now. Because I ain't going to be 5'9 for long. <laughs> Amen. I'm not going to have the physical limitations and deficiencies that I have now forever. I might have them for about 40 more years, maybe 35, maybe 30. I don't know how long I'm going to live. But after that, it's clear. It's done. I walk out of this life into his life. And so when you have right relationship with God, you acknowledge him for who he is, and he changes that hostile mind that we naturally have. You don't think people naturally have a hostile, hostile mind? You won't recognize it until you're in a position where you have to tell somebody something to do. Till you get a direction from somebody, you don't even recognize you have a hostile mind. I'm good. I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'll get along with everybody until a police officer says, stop. Who are you talking about? I, I got to do And it, all of this comes to say, who are you to tell me what to do? It's our hostile mind. We don't recognize it. There's a story of a man who had a neighbor. <coughs> He didn't get along with, and he didn't like. And so this 
this relationship just got worse and worse and worse, and there they, they hated each other, and they feuded, and they would just do little petty things against each other to, to get at each other's nerves. And, and, and finally, <coughs> the neighbor moves away, and, and the guy says, I'm so glad he moved away. I'm so glad he moved away. After several years, not only did he move away, he heard a story that the neighbor had passed away, that died. And he's like, secretly, I'm glad he died. But since it's been so long, I've forgotten all that. I give all that up. And I, I'll even go to his funeral. I'll, I'll bring some, so a, a nice card, and, and I'll be glad to bring a dish to pass to the family or whatever. I, I'll do whatever I can. And so he goes to the funeral, right? And in, in, inwardly, he's like happy <laughs> that the guy is no longer there. He's dead. But outwardly, he feels like I'm the better guy. I'm the bigger guy because I can let all of this pass. He gets to the funeral and he finds out his neighbor ain't died. It's his neighbor's cousin that died. That he confused with his neighbor and his neighbor is still there. And not only that, but he moves back in the old house that he used to live in. And guess what? He thought he had no problem with this guy. For years he was settled and at peace, but not a conflict it, it, it rears its ugly head again. That's kind of it is with man and God. That's why when you go and talk to somebody, hey, you know what? I'd just like to share a few things. What's that you holding? It's just about get out of here. They don't want you talking about the Bible. Now, we've tried to be slick about that now, so we, we don't carry a big Bible around. We talk to people. In fact, I carry one on my phone, but it still works. As soon as I begin to repeat what God says, there is this ugly animosity that spews up, and you hear all the stories of how I went to church, and the priest wasn't no good, and how my father wasn't no good, and this and that. All the excuses of why I can't hear what the Bible is saying, and they need to understand, you've got a, you got a God problem. Not only does he say we were alienated and hostile in mind, he says we were evildoers. <laughs> Not just a mind thing, but it translated into our action. If you're a parent and, and slightly observant, you will recognize it doesn't take long for that sweet, lovely baby child to really start to show his own self, given a chance. And sometimes you don't know how it is until you tell him something not to do. Don't tell him he can't have the cookies on top of the cabinet until after dinner. So he's going to find a way that makes that his one goal in life. <laughs> so he says, you were hostile, you were alienated, and you were doing evil deeds. That is our past, what we were. He goes into who we are. Verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We are now, those who trust in Christ, those who come to Christ have been reconciled. We have been restored. We have, God has placed us back, our lives back in order by placing himself back on the throne 
as Lord in our lives, and we've acknowledged that. So he says, he has now reconciled. But notice it's the work he has done. He has reconciled you. You didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm bad. I need some restoration. Let me go and get this thing worked on. God worked himself into your life, and in some bold, and sometimes this seems like almost insignificant ways, he has made himself known to you and brought you to this point, and he has reconciled you. How did he do that? In his body of flesh by his death. There is no restoring apart from the work that Christ does on the cross. There's no restoring apart from that. There's no other way to come in right relationship with God the Father except through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says what we will be. What we were, what we are now, and what we will be. He says, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. Here's what you will be. Here's what I will be. I'm not quite there yet. I'm almost, but not there. That's how we are. Holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Yes, there's a, there's a, there's a sense of to, to now as God looks at us because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are that now. But he is making us that so that when we are presented before God, that's what we will be. We will be holy, blameless, and above reproach. Why do we have to be above reproach? Because we have an enemy who's called the accuser of the brethren, and he's picking at us, and he's saying, oh, no, Lord, you, this one ain't right. <laughs> he ain't right. He ain't good. I can show you some trouble there. I can show you some stuff that he's done. But the Bible here says that we will be presented to God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. How can God take a wicked sinner such as myself and make me presentable to himself? He does that through this process that we've been talking about of reconciliation. Not my doing, it's his doing. Then he talks about, I talked talk about four senses, who we were, who we are, who we will be. And that fourth sense, I, I mentioned it this way, is who we are to be. In other words, in this life, what our goal is and how we are to live right now. He, he does that in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. He gives a condition there. The big Two-letter word there is if. You can circle it and highlight it in your Bible, if. And what does that mean? It's, it's a conditional phrase. It's saying that something is dependent on something else. It's saying two things. If you have this, you will have that. And it's also saying in order to get this, you must have that. They're conditioned on each other. They are connected in a strong way, so strong that it almost makes you stop. He says, you got all this stuff, if. Wait a minute, if. 
There's an if there. I'm a strong component. The Bible teaches that you cannot lose what God gives you. When God saves you, you are truly his, and nothing can separate you from the grace of God. I'm, I'm a strong component of that. The Bible itself teaches us that. But the Bible teaches this connection that is important for us to understand. The connection is, is that this work of re reconciliation that Christ does is, is a work that he does that is undisputed, but it shows itself in certain ways. And that's what the condition is in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. He's saying this, that this steadfastness, this continuing, this stability is all based on this work of reconciliation that Christ does that he does by the cross through his own body. What Christ does for his, those who trust in him, will bring about a stability and will bring about a steadfastness and a constant growth and continuing on in the faith. It will bring that about. He's also saying in a strong way is that if you don't have this, you don't have the first. If you are not continuing in the faith, if you are not stable and steadfast, if you are not trusting in the gospel and the gospel alone, as we said, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, what do you mean shifting? Shifting to trust in something else besides that, instead of that? there's a condition that's very powerful and very important to understand and the condition actually instead of a scary thing is one of reassurance is one that helps us along the way it helps us understand it helps us appreciate this work that only God can do what he's saying is this work that God does produces this as well and it will always produce this what is the this that it produces. It produces a continuing in the faith. Stable and steadfast. So many people have this mindset that they can make a verbal commitment to God by saying, I believe in God. And then they can go on and live whatever life they think they can live. The Bible says that's inconsistent with the work that God does. When God does this work of reconciliation, it produces this, stability. Faith. And a continuing in the faith. So many people claim to know somebody who once was saved, but ain't no more. No such person. No such person exists. 
It's also encouraging. He's saying, when God has done this work through his son, Jesus, in your life, this work of reconciliation, it produces this. And you'll be able to see this. You'll be able to see it. So he says, verse 21, you who were who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body, in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. He's not saying that you have to work and do these things in order to be saved. He is simply saying that when Christ has done this work in you, it produces this. And you can see it and know that it is the fruit of a seed that has germinated, has produced a healthy plant. So he says, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. He says, when you come to trust in this gospel, you won't shift from it. You, you know there's nothing better. There's nothing more that can be done for my salvation than the Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. I can lay on my deathbed in peace knowing I have not attained anything worthy of my salvation, but Jesus Christ himself has done that work for me or in my stead in my place, and I simply trust in him. Then he says this as we close. He goes back to the gospel, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel is an important and a powerful thing. It's saying that this steadfastness that you, you live, um, it causes you to continue in the faith, it causes you to be stable. Uh, it causes you to trust in the gospel, not shift to some other thing. That's the whole reason why he's writing this letter. He's saying be aware of anything else that comes along and tries to get you to shift your allegiance to try to weaken the argument for who Christ is and get you to turn aside from Christ. Because you don't do that. He says this gospel... It's the gospel that you have heard. It's the gospel that has been proclaimed in all creation. And he says, it's the gospel of which I, Paul, have become a minister. In other words, he says, I serve this gospel. He says, this is the gospel that was preached to you. And so as it's been preached to you, you, you need to recognize that God is sending you to speak it to others. It's the gospel that has been proclaimed in all of creation. There is nothing greater that God has in mind than this gospel. Why don't you give yourself to this gospel? We need to be proclaimers of the word of God ourselves. We need to be ones who are steadfast, who are growing in God's word and doing like Paul did. He says, hey, it's the same gospel that you are not to turn away from, the same gospel that's been preached to you, same gospel that's been preached in the whole world, and it's the same gospel that I serve. Paul says, I give my life for this. He's not patting himself on the back. He's just saying, this is real. This is real, and I give myself for it, and it is 
go, it has reached out to you. It has reached out to others. It's having that same power effect, powerful effect in their lives. You need to take it out. You need to proclaim it. You need to speak it to others. It's the one and only thing that has the message that will transform this world. Let me say it another way. It's the only message that will change Milwaukee. It's the only message that will transform your life and your family's life and those around you. It's the only message that's going to reconcile folks back to God and bring him, them in right relationship with God. Paul says, it's that message, it's that, God, that gospel that I have become a servant to. I serve now. So those, those who had their lives transformed by the gospel need also then to serve the gospel. And that is a, that is a natural I can say a supernatural consequence of what happens when the gospel impacts our lives is that we're reconciled, is that it shows itself in these various ways of our steadfastness, our stability in Christ, our continued to hope in the truth of that gospel. In other words, we continue to trust in what the gospel is saying, and then we ourselves become messengers of this gospel and servants of this gospel. The message then is don't fall short of the gospel. Let the gospel be lived out fully in your lives. That's why we invite people to not only trust in Christ, but be connected with God's people so that they can go on to proclaim the gospel by their lips and by their lives. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we would pray as Paul prayed, that those who hear the gospel be strengthened, that they recognize Christ for who he is, that they understand who they were, who they are, who they will be, and who they are to be now, and bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.